Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Daphne. And I'm Ilaria. And today we thought we would tackle the question that pretty much every human in the entirety of humanity has asked, what is the secret to happiness? This was one of my favorite things in college. What is the good life? What is the secret to happiness? And so we are having a professor of psychology at Yale University, Dr. Lori Santos, come. Um, She is also the host of the Happiness Lab podcast, and she's going to come and give us a little bit of super guru happiness advice, which I feel like right now we all could really, really, really use. I actually had heard of Dr. Santos years ago because – magazines were writing articles about how popular her classes were, that Yale students were like flocking in droves. I am so excited to dive in deep with Dr. Lori Santos. Here's our conversation. I'm Dr. Lori Santos. I'm a professor of psychology at Yale University and host of the Happiness Lab podcast. And where can we follow you? Um, You can check me out on Twitter at Lori Santos, and you can check uh, the Happiness Lab out anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm so excited because I feel like right now more than ever we need like a really big dose of happiness and I feel like you're going to just just we're just going to walk away from this podcast like really happy. Yeah, that's that's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> so how did you become the happiness expert? Yeah, so it was kind of a strange path in lots of ways. So I've been teaching psychology for like a, a million years at Yale. I've been a professor since 2002, which makes wow. me feel very old. Um, but you look very young, so the happiness must be working. Thank you. It's the Zoom. It's the Zoom window. You know, graphics <laughs> that help out here. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but I, so I took on a new role at Yale where I became a head of college, which means I live on campus with college students. Like I wow. hang out with them in the dining hall, and I, I you know hang out with them in the coffee shop and things. And honestly, the way I remember college was completely different than the way students are interacting these days. Like I remember college is, you know, it was stressful, but it was mostly a fun time. But, you know, right now, the national statistics on mental health are just devastating at the college level. So over 40 percent of college students are too depressed to function most days. Over 60 percent say that they feel overwhelmingly anxious. And more than one in 10 has seriously considered suicide in the last year. Like, it's like really scary. And I think especially for moms out there with kids at different ages, you know, if you have kids in high school or middle school, like that's what they're, you know, getting into in a couple years time. And so it was really both shocking for me, but also like as an educator, I thought, you know, I have to do something about this. Like, I'm kidding myself if I think my students are learning everything that I'm trying to teach them in psychology classes when they're really facing a mental health situation that's that dire. So I kind of retrained in this happiness stuff, mostly with the idea that I would teach Yale students a whole class on it. So I decided if I could teach Yale kids a class on how to be happier and give them these evidence-based interventions, then maybe they'd put them into effect and maybe I could make a difference in this culture. And so I kind of, you know, prepped this whole new class. I figured, you know, it's a new class, like 40 or so students would take it. Um, You can imagine my surprise when it became (laughs) the largest class ever in Yale's history. That was not something I or anyone was expecting. yeah, we you know you have to coordinate a lot with like folks in the registrar's office to get a classroom that's big enough. And you know when we were on the phone, like, all right, so how about the concert hall or like the football stadium? You know, we oh, went we went with the concert hall, but but I think that shows that you know students they're voting with their feet. Like they don't like this culture of feeling depressed and anxious, and they really wanted to do something about it. What do you think the contributing factors are to to this increase in depression and suicide and and just feeling overwhelmed? Yeah, I think honestly, I think there's a bunch of different factors. And the, and the honest answer is that we don't really know, right? Because we don't have a time machine. We'd have to like reverse time and go back and do kind of experiments like a pre-post to see what was happening. But I mean, I think some of it is probably, you know, the new culture that we face right now with phones and the kinds of ways that social media changes the way we exist in our lives. Um, you know, I think you know, when when I went to college, if I was having a bad day, I could walk out of my dorm room and there were no, I'm, I'm dating myself, but there were no cell phones back then, right? So I right. could just kind of be off the grid and it wasn't like performative to be off the grid. It wasn't like making a statement, you know, 
they could just I could just get away in a way that the current students really can't. Um, and that kind of performative culture is really yucky. I watch students be performative to show off that their life is super awesome on Instagram and they're going to the best parties and their Snapchat's showing them having fun. But then many of my students also have what they call a, a Finsta, which is their friend's mm-hmm. Instagram, right? And then and that's well, like- Well, I heard it was for a fake Instagram. That's what that's what I was told. It's it's a friend Instagram? Well, oh, the, the way they use it, which is so interesting, is a lot of them use it to kind of show the opposite. So it's performative, but in the everything is super bad, you know? So on regular Instagram, you'd put the like, you know, really nice bikini pic of you on spring break but then on finsta you'd show like look my stomach's showing and like it's raining out and so Uh. both aren't really reality like it's kind of it's like both are kind of performing what your life is and and that's just kind of yucky and scary i mean beyond that i think just beyond social media we're starting to learn that our phones are just really bad for our social health in lots of ways like mostly because they just steal our attention right like for our for my students to like pay attention to a conversation with a friend of theirs in the dining hall they have to like resist the urge to like look at their phone when on the other side of the phone is like really good podcasts like this or cat videos or porn or whatever they might want to look at, right? Right. There's just so much other cool stuff. And so there's this interesting opportunity cost to like living in real life that I think this generation is facing in a way that no other generation has. You referenced something that um, that you didn't think your, your students would be able to absorb what you were trying to teach them in their current headspace. And I think that that's something that we, as part of this dialogue around like what you know, all the great information you have to share about what it takes to be happy or to have the good life or whatever that means, none of that matters if they're not in a receptive state and if their brain isn't functioning at that level, if they're kind of in our, like today's society version of fight or flight all the time. And I wonder, like, how did you, how did you coach the students who were savvy enough to realize, like, yours was a class they were really going to get a lot out of and wanted to be a part of? How did you help them get to a place where they could actually absorb that information? Because I don't think, I think everyone wants that. Everyone wants to find that, but it's so overwhelming, exactly as you said. Even our relaxing time feels performative. So how do you, what advice did you have for your students to get them in a good headspace? And sort of how can we as moms translate that information? Yeah, yeah. I think we did two things that I think tried to get them in the right headspace. So the first was really just to kind of just at the start validate that all this is really hard, that like the data suggests that you can get happier if you want to. But like all good things, it's going to take some work. You know, it's like, you know, you can't get perfect legs unless you like hit the gym. Right. Like you can't like, you know, look great unless you're eating healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like this becoming happy takes work just like all this other good stuff, you know. And so for the students, I use the analogy of like they all worked incredibly hard to get into an Ivy League school. But I was like, you're going to have to work just as hard to kind of deal with your own happiness levels if that's if that's what you want to do. And so so part of it was validating, like, this is going to be a journey and it's going to require some work. Um, the second thing we talked a lot about is, and then I think this is the first step on the journey, is that the science really shows we have some really bad intuitions about the kinds of things that make us happy, right? You know, so many such of these, as what, such as like, you know, it's all about money and fame and accolades. You know, I think, you know, b- both of you know well that you can be incredibly famous and you can have incredibly rich lives, but that may or may not be the kind of thing that brings you happiness. You know, I think on this show and lots of other podcasts, people see folks who are incredibly rich and wealthy who are like absolutely miserable or just absolutely lost about what yes. they want to do. And so I think my students go through the same thing. You know, they were taught probably since toddler age that getting into an Ivy League school was going to you know, make them happy. It was going to lead to a perfect life. And a lot of them self-describe this moment when they, you know, at Yale, they get this little link on an email and they click on it and it plays this little video that's like, you got into Yale. And they often describe that as the best moment of their life. But then mm. two seconds later, they describe as like one of the darkest moments of their life because they Why realize like, oh, I got it. Like, and now what else? And now right. what else? Exactly. You know, right. Like now what's what's the next carrot I have to chase after, you know? Well, I think about that a lot because I do think our education system, uh, you know, I don't know where it happened, if it was standardized testing, if it was, you know, just having to put structures or like the best of intentions leading to the worst of results trying to, you know, but it, it definitely made this model where, and I felt this uh, wholly, where I knew exactly how to perform. I knew exactly what I needed to do to get the A. I knew how to cram the information. I knew like what information was relevant. I knew how to write an essay. Like that was, those are very valuable skill sets, but it did not instill in me like the, you know, I, I this is 
fantasy anyway, but I, I, my grandmother has maybe 40 poems in her memory. You know, she has, you know, you, you walk, you would, you would walk through an art museum and she would know stuff about every, every painting in there. There was just a treasure trove of locked data that she had from a lifetime. My grandfather's the same way. He's like a walking encyclopedia of, of loving to learn, but also a different style of learning that is, I think, self-created. Mm-hmm. And I worry that I absolutely, I think like my goal was I, I want to go to Princeton. Like here's how I, here's what I'm going to do to try to get there. And like, de- and like it was not a guarantee obviously by any stretch of the imagination, but I had some pretty interesting and, and solid ideas of how to get there. And then once I was there, it's like, well, nobody told me what real life, what, like what, what are the goalposts of real life, you know? Um, and what am I supposed to strive for now? And I, I wonder how we, f- I wonder how and at what and we're obviously Alari and I are parents to children under the age of 6 but very much already you know in kindergarten and first grade i see a learning style and an interest that is starting to develop and i want to be thoughtful of that in a way that lets uh, that hopefully my kids have this have have a have an internal compass that is not someone else telling them this is what you need to know to get the a but this is this is a body of information you might one day want to call upon and do with it what you will. Like that's a very different motivating point. So I'm just, I guess the question is how do we, if you as a professor seeing how people really do learn and what really does make a difference in their life, is there something you would do with a a five or a six or a seven-year-old now that's different than what most people are probably doing? Yeah, I think this is so important. Actually, we have a whole podcast episode called Making the Grade about this very issue because Yale is responsible for this, by the way, because it seems like like the problem, according to science, is grades. And it turns Mm -hmm. out grades were invented at Yale, embarrassingly, (laughs) this horrible thing. Oh, my gosh. 1785, president of Yale, Ezra Stiles, decided, like, rather than just teach people stuff, we should keep track of who learned it and he just like scribbled in his diary actually four different grades for his students at the time Um, which is important because you know for hundreds of years we educated people without grades and the science suggests that it's really about that it's about every case where there's something that we love say learning and then we put some external reward on it right we give it a grade right and so you i think parents with young kids do this in other contexts right like you want your kids to be nice to their siblings you want your kids to like pick up their toys or whatever and you then kind of slap an external reward on it like i'll give you a cookie or you know you'll get a gold star or something like that and what the data suggests is that instead of kind of feeling like this was a thing that was rewarded in its own right, you start doing it for the external reward. Mm-hmm. Um, in our podcast, we talked to someone who is like obsessed with their Fitbit, you know, who used to like going running on their own, but then it became about like getting the little dings on the Fitbit. And then mm-hmm. it stops being about running. You become like obsessed with this external reward. Mm-hmm. And I think just as you said, we've like actually created a culture where our whole education system is based on these external rewards, whether that's, again, like a gold star or a grade or getting into to a school like Yale, like and and the data suggests that what that's done is exactly what happened to you like at Princeton, which is like you're working to get into Princeton. You're working for like what you think is going to give you this external validation. But then when you stop and think, you're like, wait, what do I actually really want? What do I want to learn? You know, what do I need to do as an adult? We've kind of missed that. And so I think for parents thinking about this, I think it's really important to think, you know, when have you kind of pushed things off onto external rewards, whether that's, you know, the grades your kids are getting in school, even if it's like first grade or kindergarten or something like that, whether that's the external rewards you use to kind of motivate Mm -hmm. behavior, those things kind of work in the short term. The problem Mm -hmm. is like they work too well, right? And then they can kind of steal the joy that underlies certain things. You sit, you talk about the Fitbit and I I realized for myself when I started using apps to run, I love to run, that I was holding myself to a higher standard. Well, I ran slower today and I was one minute less than this and you start, you it, it's so out of the body. And what I learned was, all right, I'm going to give myself a certain time. I'm going to do 30 minutes and I'm going to run my best in those 30 minutes. And if it's not the same, that's okay. But literally having to have a conversation with myself without, you know, and now I'm almost seven months pregnant and I'm using, um, you know, we're in quarantine and I can't run as well. I mean, not just because of quarantine, but because I'm 
very pregnant and I'm using Peloton. And they have all of these, you know, you can compete against this one and that one. And I'm like, I'm going to do 20 minutes. I'm going to do whatever I want for those 20 minutes, okay? Because I need to listen to my body. Which is which is so smart. I mean, I think the, the problem, I mean, it's in everything, right? You know, it's in fitness apps when we used yeah. to love running and exercising. It's in meditation apps, right? You know, like some of the meditation apps I use are scoring me, right? Where it's like, we shouldn't get scored like literally on meditation, on like being present, right? But that's, but that's the thing is that really what it comes comes down to is that we're not capable of being with ourselves and we're not capable of knowing if we're honest or not because so much is about this sort of appreciation from the outside. How many likes do I get on this? How much stars did I get on this app? How many this did I get on that? You know, what's my grade on this? And constantly having to prove ourselves in this culture. You know, I mean, as a as a question, I mean, I feel right now this is so there we're at such a time of 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 learning about how we can be better. You know, Daphne and I are very um, active on our Instagrams and we have relatively big followings. Um, and what are what are certain things that you find can help people through Instagram? Because I feel like both of us have sort of this positive outlook. We like to share positive things. We like to get involved with different things that are going on at the moment, try to help people reach out, help moms. That was the whole idea of our podcast you know, through our podcast and through our own Instagrams and through the people who are listening, who are also moms trying to reach out to other moms, what are things that are you find to be helpful to ourselves and to others? And what do you think are things that we're putting out there that might be harmful to ourselves and to others? Yeah, I think the key here is really trying to be mindful about what you're consuming and kind of pay attention to sort of what's nutritious. I often like to use these analogies with like eating or exercise when I think about happiness because I think it works a lot the same way. But I think as you're paying attention to your own Instagram use, as you're paying attention to what you want to post and so on, you need to think about like what's nutritious for you, right? And that's going to vary from person to person. Mm -hmm. Like some people are just going to like love Instagram and not get obsessed with the likes and just recognize the value that they're having sharing this good content for moms. That's one thing. But you might also start noticing like, oh, I posted that and not as many people looked as last time. And like, so, so the key is to kind of pay attention to what's working for you. And if it stops working, if it starts to feel not nutritious, like you're getting obsessed or you're paying attention to the wrong things or it just feels gross, like notice that and try to shift your behavior around it. Right. That might mean like forcing yourself not to look at the likes or that might mean doing it only a certain amount and not getting obsessed with it or trying to kind of interact with certain like certain feeds and not others. Right. I think part of being nutritious for me has meant you know, getting off of some of the like Twitter followers that I look at, right? Because I noticed like whenever I'm reading this stuff, I'm not feeling nutritious, I'm feeling gross, or I'm feeling bad about myself or something like that. And so paying attention to what's working for you and being kind of non-judgmental about it. You know, there, there are like certain like accounts that we feel like we're supposed to follow, but it, make, it makes us feel bad. It's like, you know, it's, it's only supposed to work for you. Like if it's not right. working for you, just switch it up. I love that. What about helping other people? Because I know that's something that Daphne and I are also very focused on is, is helping people and putting content out there that's going to make people feel good. Um, and whether you have three people following you or you have three million people following you, you have an effect on other people. And so what for, for all of us listening to you, what kinds of stuff can we put out there and not put out there that is nutritious for the world? Yeah. Well, I think one of the big things to remember scientifically is that our emotions aren't just like emotions that are in our body that are affected by what we're thinking, what we're going through. We catch the emotions of other people. And there's some lovely data that have come out of Jeff Hancock's lab suggesting that that's true on social media, too. You know, he did this famous study where he had he worked with Facebook to get them to just switch their algorithm a little bit. So your feed had slightly more negative content or slightly more positive content. And he found that that affected people's emotions and then it affected what they themselves posted. So mm -hmm. I think the biggest way we we can help other people with our feeds is making sure that we're putting stuff out that we are proud of, right? That are that would make us feel good, that wouldn't make us feel bad about ourselves if we were looking at it in someone else's feed. And I think that can be that can be lots of different things. That can be regulating the emotions. So like, you know, 2020 is rough enough already. Like we have to face the news and we have to face what's going on. But there are different spins we could have on that bad information. And is there a way to get a more positive spin or a more optimistic spin or a more hopeful spin? Like that that matters a lot. Um, the other thing is to realize what we're putting out and trying to think about, you know, can this make someone feel bad about themselves? You know, maybe I might really love the photos of my vacation, but is that going to make everybody in my feed feel crappy 
because like they didn't get to go to, I don't know, Barbados last week or something like that. Like, I think it's a matter of realizing that the content you put out is going to affect other people's emotions. And that's cool. It means we have this responsibility in what we put in our feed to like affect other people positively. Like we can be the change we want to see on these platforms because we're the ones posting stuff. Right. Were you always happy or like how did you cultivate your deep understanding of what makes the average human happy? Oh, I'm like super not happy. I'm like a naturally kind of gripey, very ungrateful kind of morose person. I think it's like for the people who know me well that now that I'm seen as this happiness guru, it's like kind of hilarious and a little bit weird for them because they're like, okay, you're the happiness guru now. Um, No, but I think, you know, what's what's changed is two things. One is like, I know the kinds of things I'm supposed to do. And that knowledge is helpful to a certain extent, right? Because like, you know, you, you know that if I'm feeling bad, like, you know, I'll get a X amount of endorphins from hopping on the treadmill or having a hard yoga session. If I'm feeling bad and I switch my focus to what I'm grateful for, I know what the graphs are going to say about how that can improve my mood, right? So knowledge is helpful. Um, but more than knowledge, I think what I've gained is like, as a happiness guru, if I'm not practicing what I preach, I'm going to totally get called out on it. <laughs> like, especially by my students when I was teaching the class, you know, if they saw me complaining about something or if I, if they knew that I was stressed and I wasn't sleeping as well, like they knew what I was telling them. And so they would totally call me out that I wasn't, you know, doing what I was supposed to be doing. And that's great. That meant I had real social support for doing the right thing. So how does someone like you with those mental resources and and the facts that you, that armed you, how did you respond to the pandemic? How do you, how do you respond to the news of the day? Like, which I think most of us will agree is, is, you know, any range of of upsetting, disturbing, you know, aggravating, angering, like there are so many emotions, sometimes uplifting, but it seems that that a lot of news that drives traffic anyway is more in the outrage category. So um, and I think that's what Alari and I were getting at, too, which we, our focus is to try to try to try to highlight some of the positivity as well so that there's balance because I do, I do think humans crave balance. I think we we can't just live in negativity all the time. It, it makes us so much less powerful to affect the changes we, we want to see desperately. Um, but I'm just so curious how someone with your skill sets like may have may have approached these topics and this sort of headspace differently. Yeah, I mean, well, first, just validating. Like, 2020 has sucked. Like, you know, we're all talking in the summer <laughs> okay, of 2020. I'm nice about it. And, it no, sucks. I mean, it sucks, right? Like, like you know, we're in the midst of a horrible pandemic. Like, there are awful wildfires in the middle of Australia. We are coming face-to-face with a long legacy of anti-Black violence, which is mm-hmm. really awful for the Black community, but is really hard for non-marginalized folks, too, because it, like, sucks to realize this. Like, mm-hmm. this is a tough, tough time, right? But I think what kind of being a happiness guru or just learning this stuff has taught me is that we still have control over our own reactions to this situation. Part mm-hmm. of it is that we have our control over our mindset towards it, right? You know, I could see this time as like, you know, this awful time that I'm just going to gripe about and kind of, you know, go inward and just kind of like be upset about everything. Or I could see it kind of as a challenge, right? You know, for me as a happiness girl, I'm like, all right, if I can't double down on this stuff right now, you know, why am I even going out to teach this stuff, right? And so for me, part of it has been trying to explicitly change my mindset. And it's helped by knowing that, you know, people through all kinds of trauma often can have a really good mindset, a mindset of challenge or something like that, you know, from like Viktor Frankl, who, you know, was in the Holocaust, you know, he, he was like in a concentration camp who wrote about, you know, you still have control over your own viewpoint mm-hmm. to like all this new work on what's called post-traumatic growth, which is that people who go through trauma and communities who go through trauma, sometimes there's post-traumatic stress, but there's also a lot of evidence for post-traumatic growth, which is that mm. after a trauma, you and your community become more resilient. You get more socially connected. You learn what's meaningful in life. Like, you know, nobody's going to choose to go through trauma. Like nobody would have picked 2020 to look like this. But I think now that we're here, we can try to reap the benefits and the strength that comes from going through this kind of awful time. I I love that outlook. That's definitely helped me day by day. You know, just, I mean, especially, you know, considering considering what's happening with racial injustice right now, it's been amazing to see the idea of this is an opportunity for us all to learn. This has been a long time coming. And just because a lot of people are not really focused on it day by day doesn't mean that it's a really big reality for people. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we're all coming together and trying to support each other and trying to get to a different place, I think is is actually 
a, a very positive thing that, that's happening out of this year. Personally for you and what you would recommend to people, when you're just feeling down, I mean, I know you say getting on the treadmill and doing stuff like that, but like, you know, I mean, also as a fitness person, I can tell you that I can tell a million people that it's going to feel really good to go work out. doesn't mean that they're actually going to be able to lift themselves up and go, go out and do it. I mean, showing up is the hardest thing to an activity that's positive because we're so incapable of, of feeling that, of feeling that very fine point of balance, which is happiness. How can people begin to, to choose more positive things rather than saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to sit on my couch and eat a lot of stuff that's going to make me feel worse and maybe drink some things that is going to really make me not feel very good and just be miserable. So one way that's really helped me honestly is like knowing what the science says, right? Like it's one thing to kind of hear like, oh yeah, like exercising will make you happier. It's one thing, it's a, it's a different thing for me to have like seen the graph that like actually a half hour of cardio a day is as effective as a prescription of Zoloft, one of the leading antidepressant medications at reducing depression symptoms. I'm kind of like, huh, I could just hop on, you know, I could just hop on the treadmill for half hour. Maybe I should do that, you know? Um, so part, part of it is like knowing the real facts about this. Um, but Another part is kind of developing a practice of mindfulness, developing a practice of paying attention to what really feels nutritious. And that takes some work, too. Right. You kind of have to, like, notice and pay attention afterwards. But if you do, you start to pay attention to, like, the, the ways that our minds are lying to us, as we talked about before. Right. There's so many things that are really nutritious that it feels like my brain just doesn't realize. You know, my brain just doesn't realize that, like, a hardcore hour long yoga session is going to feel awesome. Like when I'm having a crappy day. I can explicitly know that, but I don't like crave it. Some people, maybe as a fitness expert, you do, Ilaria, but like, you know, I don't, right? I, like what I crave is like the cupcake or that glass of wine or whatever, which is not going to make me feel Hello. yeah. <laughs> me, me on I this like one. those <laughs> things too. I like those things but too. But this is, but this is like, I mean, it's, it's actually, we know now from the neuroscience where this comes from. This is kind of fascinating. So it turns out there's a disconnect in our brain between the systems that are there for wanting. So for craving something, going after it, like, behaving so that you get it and the systems that are there for liking like really enjoying it and so we see this most in the context of drug addiction right like if you're a hardcore heroin addict you have incredible wanting or craving for the drug but when you get it you're often so habituated that like you're used to it you don't even enjoy it as much huh. as you did before right. right and so i see this like writ large in so many things we do you know as i said like i don't crave going out to get exercise that's just not me but every time i get it i like it a lot i totally crave things like a cupcake or just sitting and like blindly painfully watching Netflix like that or like stupid video games on my phone. I've just downloaded this game Best Fiends and I'm like super addicted to it and I have such craving for it. But then afterwards, if I'm being mindful and I notice like I don't really like it that much. And so the mind would be so much easier and the lives of happiness gurus and fitness experts would be so much easier if we could align these two systems, if we could make people's brains want what they actually like. But you don't. And the only way we know of to do it as scientists is to kind of like put some effort into noticing the liking part. Like after I, you know, play the stupid video game, sit there and think, how'd that feel? And I'm like, actually, if I think of how that feel, I feel kind of gross and sort of nasty and like, you know, kind of pathetic right now. Right. Versus after my yoga class, like if I take a minute to notice how I feel, I'm like, I feel great. I feel present and I feel kind of tired in a good way. Um, I once at my favorite yoga studio I was working out at for a while, I had this yoga teacher who at the end of the class when you were in Shavasana would always say, take a moment to be present and, and think about how this class made you feel. How do you feel right now? Like, that's why you want to come to yoga every day. He said that after every class. And for me, it was like a, a like a light bulb came on. I was like, wait a minute. I do like this. Like brain, like let's get in gear. Like let's go after this in the future. I love that. It's making me want to ask you, what's like the coolest bit of research you've read recently around happiness? Um, I think it, it actually is this stuff about post-traumatic growth that we mentioned really briefly before. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, in the midst of this crisis, I'm like, you know, what good stuff can we think about in this crisis? Like this, you know, this pandemic is obviously, I mean, people are losing their jobs. They're getting really sick. People are losing family members. Like, it's a rough time. And so I was kind of reading more about trauma and how it worked and realized, like, wait, there's this whole literature showing that like trauma is good like no one's going to pick trauma to like get stronger and develop meaning in life but people who go through this stuff wind up better on the other side and i think that's such an important thing to realize like again no one would have picked 2020 to have all these problems 
But maybe through going through these problems, we're going to be better off. You know, for sure, for the fight for racial equity, I think we're going to be better off. I think we're seeing people engaging in this conversation that never have before, right? Like, that's what we're really going to need to do to fix things. But I think the same thing with the pandemic, right? Like, I think all of us, no matter what our situation, are realizing all these things we missed in life, right? right? That like we should have been incredibly grateful for, that we just absolutely took for granted. And once we're out of this, which we are, I hope that I won't take those things for granted anymore. I hope when I finally get to go plop down in my favorite coffee shop and get a latte again, that I'm incredibly joyful, you know, mm-hmm. as joyful as I should have felt, you know, the 400 other times I was there and just didn't notice how cool it was. So so my hope is that when we all get out of this, we're going to have a reframe of the things that we're really grateful for. And that can bring us a lot more joy. It can kind of give us the resilience and the sort of benefit from this trauma that post-traumatic growth work suggests we should all get. It's really interesting to me to hear you talk about um, things that are nutritious for you and not, things that make you feel good and things that don't. Um, My background's in food, so most things come back to recipes and and food for me anyway. But I I do think it's – I think you also talked a little bit about mental fitness and and sort of the tricks your brain plays on you versus what is actually happening. Um, I've talked a little bit on this podcast about my grandmother's big fascination with the Stoics and their whole philosophy that happiness actually isn't the goal. Control of your own mind is the goal and your ability to absorb the things around you that are happening that are outside your control and with some sense of grace and rationality and then your proactive approach to the things that you can control. Really, like that's the whole organized life that they're going for. And I'm curious what, if any, like mental exercises or mental fitness things we can be doing to make sure we're taking nutritious information. I think we, I think we covered that, but, but then even more so when it's, when it's, when we don't even realize we're doing the wrong things or when the world is doing it to us or when we're just in a negative headspace, like what what sort of mental activities can we be doing to bring the happiness up? And I'm curious if you agree with them, is happiness not actually the goal? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of, I mean, so first off, let me just validate your grandmother who like, I adore the Stoics. They like a bazillion years ago were on top of everything that modern day positive psychology research suggests, like they kind of got it, even though they didn't have the scientific evidence. And so, you know, one of the tips is just like, be more like the Stoics. You know, maybe that's what your, your grandmother was teaching That's all you, she but, says all the time. She like yeah. emails me daily, be more like the Stoics. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's great advice. And I think, you know, I think p- part of what the Stoics got right is that we can take action to reframe things. Like that's a really powerful thing that we always have control over our framing. And, and the research suggests that one way we can reframe things that that will make us happier is by experiencing more gratitude, right? The simple act of counting our blessings. It, all, all this advice is scientific and there's brain changes and whatever, but it does mm-hmm. sound like grandmother advice. Generally, it's like it needs a <laughs> rebranding. But yeah, like gratitude, like this, you know, the simple act of scribbling down three to five things you're grateful for uh, significantly improves your well-being in as little as two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the simple act of doing what the Stoics suggested, like negative visualization, which is this idea of like thinking about what your life would be like if you didn't have the things you cared about. You know, if you like, you know, for for every mom out there right now, think about what your life would be like if you didn't have your kids. Like if some horrible thing was happening at this moment that took them away from you, like let, hopefully that's not happening. But if you take a second, as the Stoics suggested, to think about that horrible thing and then you realize your kids are still fine, you know, they're just in the other room playing, you're going to run in there and hug them a little bit more tightly just because you had this moment to think about what you'd be missing if you didn't have them. And so those are just simple hacks, but they're ones that really cause us to appreciate and be present with the things that really we we should be present with and we should really love in life. Um, but in terms of how to get yourself to do it, I love that this is a podcast for moms because I actually feel like harnessing your family for this can be a really powerful tool. I'm child free, so I mostly do it with my students, but they're good, like, you know, teenage kind of kids. I have like 400 of them in my residential <laughs> college kind of, right? You, you have enough. <laughs> I have enough. I have enough. But, 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 but the power is like, I've seen this even in so many emails of folks who've, t- who've taken my class and talked to me and said, you know, I was trying to figure out ways to put this stuff into practice. And then I harnessed my kids. You know, I told my 10 year old, like, let's, you know, talk about what we're grateful for before, you know, like before dinner every night. Or every time you hear mom complaining, let me know. Or every time you see me not 
paying attention to you because I'm looking at Instagram. Point that out and remind me that I want to be more mindful about my social media. You know, ask, hey, mom, is that nutritious right now? And like kids of a certain age get really into this. Like, they would they love, love calling this. your mom. Are you kidding? Out, right? My kids love it. They they call their dad out. My husband. They call him out all the time. Oh, daddy loves his phone so much. Oh, daddy. Da, 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 da. They absolutely love it. But you're doing two things. One is like you're inadvertently getting social support for this goal that you have, right? Which is maybe to be more mindful about your phone or to experience more gratitude. The second thing you're doing is that, again, they're going to have to practice what they preach too, right? If they're telling you to be more grateful, they're going to become a child who has to be more Mm -hmm. grateful. You know, they have to think about their blessings too. And so I think trying to infuse this stuff into families can be really powerful and especially trying to infuse this stuff into family traditions or family habits. You know, we've gotten away from a lot of the habits that our cultures have told us are good for us. You know, things like saying grace at meal, again, not in like a religious way, but just in like a grateful way. You know, I'm so grateful to have this food that there are people out there who got this for me, that I'm rich enough and healthy enough to be eating right now. Right. Like just the nanosecond it takes to kind of think that can completely reframe your day. And you can have that moment not just kind of by yourself, but really express it with your family members. I love that. That's amazing advice. My, um, I had a teacher one time that was talking exactly about the kind of what Daphne, you were saying about being stoic versus this idea of happiness and really feeling. And he said, the real goal is to be able to be inside and outside at the same time. And I, I wrote a book about how I, I deal with my own happiness and my own system of sort of being grateful for things. But I and I talked about it in this. It was like he said he wanted you should be able to feel the passion. You don't want to be completely stoic where it's like, oh, I don't really care. And we're we're pleasure seekers. We're pleasure seekers. We want to feel passion. Why why would passion exist if we're not supposed to feel mm-hmm. it? But at the same time, we don't want to take it away from us and then lose our our perspective of the issue. So how can you be inside and feel the passion and outside and have the frame of mind? You know, my kid is driving me crazy right now. And I'm very passionate in a negative way about that. But what would happen if I didn't have them? you know, exactly what you're bringing up. And I have to keep that. I Well, I'm lucky to have my kid who's driving me crazy right now. <laughs> and then I, I use that all the time. I mean, I've got a million little tiny babies, as does, as does Daphne. And it's just like, I need my moments of in, in that I need to not like want to, you know, do something horrible and take a deep breath. I'm like, okay, we can all talk about this and realize that it's going to be over. Yeah. One of my favorite, this is getting back to a different form of ancient wisdom, is one of my favorite ways to deal with this comes from... From a, a Buddhist parable called the second arrow. Um, and so the parable goes like this, you know, Buddha is talking to his disciples and he's giving them an example. Like if somebody's walking down the street and they get hit with an arrow, like somebody shoots them with an arrow, is that bad? And his disciples said, yeah, that sucks to get you know shot with an arrow. And he said, well, what if you get shot with a second arrow on top of that? So you get shot with a first arrow and a second arrow in addition. And all his disciples said, well, that would be even worse. And so Buddha goes on to explain the first arrow is just life. That's the like poop happens, right? You cannot control that. That's just circumstances. But the second arrow is on you. You know, that's you stabbing yourself with it when you get pissed off and upset or frustrated with your kids or, you know, you had a bad bad day at work and you come home and you take it out on your kids. Buddha goes on to say, like, you control that second arrow and you can you can do it differently. Right. Um, So you can't kind of control the emotion part, but you can control your reaction to the emotion. Right. And, you know, Buddha says that, of course, it's not easy. Right. Like that's what you have to like train to be a monk to be able to follow that advice. But part of it is taking time to notice when you're in the emotion and kind of having a break between the moment that you're feeling it and kind of your reaction to it. Realizing that there's a difference between feeling the emotion and your reaction to it can be really quite powerful. And and there's wonderful meditation techniques that help you with this, you know, particularly for negative emotions, things like sadness or anger or frustration. Like there's a moment when you have when you realize that that's what it is in your body. Right. So for a mom, it's like, you know, this bad day at work and you come in, your kid's like, where's dinner? And you're like, Ugh. if you take a moment to be like, wait a minute, what am I feeling right now? I'm like mad at my coworker. I'm feeling tense. My chest is really tight. I'm like, you know, like my head hurts like and I'm like almost ready to slam the pot down. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what I'm feeling. Let me sit with that for a second, right? Let me just be with that for a second. Realize it's not my kid's fault. Okay, move on, right? And so it's not easy, but there is this moment if you can find it between the kind of feel like that first arrow of all the bad things and our reaction to it. And 
techniques like mindfulness and just noticing doing what researchers call like a body scan where you're just kind of noticing how that feels in your body can be really quite powerful. And I think for moms, it's incredibly important because the data suggests that if you try to shove emotions away, if you try to pretend you're like not pissed off when you are, you're not really upset when you when you really are, kids catch that. Um, there's some really scary studies about um, you kind of make a mom in a study upset and then you have them you have the mom play with her kid like doing like Legos or something like that. And you tell the mom like whatever you do, try to show that your kid you try to make sure your child doesn't know that you're upset. And what the researchers find is that not only do the kids notice it, but they more more when the mom's trying to pretend that she's not upset, do the kids catch that emotion and they actually do worse at this Lego task that like they're like less creative on this test. And so the key, like ironically enough, is not to like pretend like we're not experiencing negative emotions. It's to like notice them and give them a little space and do whatever we need to do not to like stab ourselves with that second arrow. What about talking about – I mean, I find – and this could be completely wrong and I'd love for you to correct it, but I find that having these conversations with my kids, so I'll tell them, you know, I'm feeling really upset right now and obviously whatever is appropriate for their age. I'm not going to – because there's coronavirus and people are dying. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say something like that. But, you know, mommy's feeling really sad right now and I'm sad because of da-da-da-da-da. The kids – my kids are fascinated by the fact that grownups like actually cry sometimes because they've seen us cry a few times over the past year. They're just fascinated by this and they call it kid crying. I don't know where they came up with that, but they call it kid crying. But then I find that, you know, my kids were fighting over a toy today and and we're talking about sharing and all the typical things that are very difficult for kids to do. And um, and they were, you know, he, my, my sons were saying, you know, I'm really mad right now. And I'm really mad because of da, 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 da. And I don't know if I'm giving myself too much credit, but I was like, all right, you know what? Me talking about my emotions and not hiding them from them in an age-appropriate way is allowing them to be little people who are are becoming verbal with their emotions. And instead of – this gives them an – not to say they don't still beat each other because they do, <laughs> but like it, I find that it's giving them a tool that's that they're capable of taking out sometimes at least and little by little hopefully more where instead of smacking their brother, they're going to say, I'm really mad at you because you took my toy. Yeah. No, I think that's huge. And actually the science bears that out, right? The, the more you can get – the more you can talk about your own emotions and label them and particularly describe the physical sensations that go with it so they can kind of know because they can be like, oh, I'm angry or I'm sad. But if you're like, I'm sad, like I can actually feel it. Like I feel like I'm going to cry, like my eyes are welling up or, or like I'm mad, like my forehead is tense and I want to clench my fist. Like you're giving them to tools not only to label those emotions, but to recognize what they feel like. Right. Because even as adults, it's hard. You know, I know like something's wrong, but then I have to like step back and be like, oh, it's because I saw that mean thing on Twitter and like, you know, it's like, you know, and like, you know, I could I ran out of tea and I was like annoyed by that. It's like hard to diagnose. Right. And so I think by by kind of helping them see what it feels like and describing what it feels like to you, that can be quite powerful. And then I think allowing them to feel it and be and allowing them to be OK with feeling it. You know, if your your son's like, oh, I'm really angry. Be like, that's good. That's all. You know, like you're experiencing an emotion like that's what that's what happens with humans. What does anger feel like? You know, let, let's play. Let's play the game and like get really curious about what this feels like. Um, functionally, what you're doing is is a technique that meditation expert Chara Brock calls RAIN. It's an acronym for recognize, accept, investigate, and nurture, right? And so first you got to recognize, you got to call a spade a spade. Is it anger? Is it sadness? Is it frustration? Like, what is it? And then accept, like, oh, you know, you're doing that thing that humans do. Like, great. <laughs> like, you know, this is not a bad thing, but let's investigate it. Like, what does it really feel like, right? And, and the investigate part is important because as you start paying attention to what it feels like in your body, often it, it, it like loses its grip, right? When you start describing right. anger in terms like my head, you know, it's like it's you're not as angry anymore. And then you kind of nurture, right? Which I think moms will do naturally with kids, which is like, that sucks to feel angry. You know, we, we're going to feel it sometimes. We have to accept it. But like, that sucks. What can we do to, you know, make that better and make you feel a little less angry? And so kind of adopting that technique, modeling it for your kids is incredibly powerful. I'm going to remember rain. I really like that. And I think it's, um, I think, I think it's something that, you know, I definitely have been – I've tried to be really aware of with my kids when they – trying to give, help them put words to what they're feeling so that – because, it you know, all of us know that the things that live only in our heads are so much worse and, until we give them voice and give them oxygen and then you name it so you can tackle it, whatever – I'm not saying it properly, but whatever that phrasing is. And I, I something else that's been really helpful for my kids anyway is 
letting them know that these emotions are fleeting, that these are not a permanent state of events because I don't think kids have a particularly well-honed sense of, you know, the the permanence of things. And, you know, I think that's true for grownups too. Like we feel totally. like we're in this cyclone right now that will be here forever. And, um, you know, I, I feel confident that we, that we will find a, a positive escape route. Um, I'm so curious, what do you study in the happiness lab? What do you study in the cognitive comparative cognition lab? Like what, what does that look like? What's, what is cutting edge happiness look like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the comparative lab is actually sort of my day job. I also study animals and dogs and how they think and things. It's kind of like, you know, my life before I became a happiness guru. But, hmm. but you know, but what we're trying to do, I think the cutting edge work that's going on in positive psychology right now, at least for me and in, in our lab, is like trying to figure out if teaching people this stuff is really helping. And so we're doing a lot of pre and post surveys on our online version of the class. So the class is available online for free for anybody who wants to take it. And mm -hmm. I think especially if you have older kids, it's awesome to take with your kids. You can kind of just like watch the lectures like a Netflix show, like instead of whatever documentary you're going to watch, like watch this and have conversations about it. It can be super powerful. Um, but we're actually taking data on people who take the class pre and post to try to see if it's really helping and, and what's helping and what's doing the helping and is it different for different people different ages people from different backgrounds and so on and so i think figuring out what really works and what really works like in the actual real world you know in the midst of covid19 in the midst of 2020 i think that's kind of what i'm most excited about seeing coming up soon um we want to know just a little bit about your podcast yeah. So, you know, we we I taught the class at Yale and, you know, tons of students came out for it. We put the class online. Over two million people signed up, which is maybe maybe in your world, what? like, yeah, two million people. <laughs> no, but like, no, I was like, two million people. Like, it's crazy. That's a lot of people. That's a That's lot of people. So, cool. and so that was crazy. But I also got lots of emails from folks who were like, OK, I'm super stressed out and unhappy. I'm not going to take a whole Yale class. Like, I don't have time for that. So, like, give me something that's like little digestible tips that we can use. And so that's mm -hmm. where we started the Happiness Lab podcast, um, which is basically all this stuff that we've been talking about in podcast form. And it's been so fun because, you know, as you know, like talking about these things in a narrative form, hearing people's stories and how they apply it in their own lives, you know, it's so much more powerful than maybe just like hearing these boring scientific studies. And so it's been kind of a blast. And we've been having episodes that are focused a lot on coronavirus, but also on these hard conversations about anti-Black violence that are coming up and particularly how you can be an ally if you yourself are not Black or if you yourself are struggling with how you can make a difference. I'm excited. I'm going to start following today. I know. I'm excited about that. All right. Tell us, what's your favorite thing currently? My favorite thing right now is a book called The Stoic Challenge, um, which is uh, by Bill Irvine, who's a philosopher. And he's this like modern day philosopher that jumps back to the Stoics, who really his idea is that what we need to do is to sort of see things in the challenging way that the Stoics would see them. Um, I think you should you should definitely gift it to your grandmother. I'm going <laughs> to. Thank you. I'm, I'm buying it now. <laughs> um, but it, it helps me a lot. I actually read it just before the pandemic started. When I was, uh, this was in December of last year, I fell on the ice and I fractured my patella. So I fractured my kneecap. Oh, and I was in a really, geez. despite being a happiness girl, I was in a really woe is me kind of space about this injury. And I picked up this book and it like completely transformed how I got through that injury. And the book kind of goes through of like, you think that's bad. You could have X, Y, and Z. And it, it gave me these wonderful <laughs> negative visualizations of like, it could be worse. And I was like, whoa, what, you know, I actually need to be grateful that all I got was a fractured patella. You know, I can still have use of my arms. I can still like call people. And, and so it was really powerful. Yeah. So the Stoic Challenge by Bill Irvine. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving us some happy. Yeah, this is awesome. So great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Mumbling. I definitely needed that. And I, I learned a lot during that conversation. First of all, I mean, the fact that she's, she says she's been teaching since 2002 and she mm -hmm. looks like she's like 20 years old. I feel <laughs> like the happiness works. thing, I know the <laughs> happiness thing is definitely working. Um, um, we are creatures of habit. And so a lot of this is a practice, you know, and as I was listening to her, I was thinking, yeah, the, you know, when she was saying, how does this activity make me feel? And then also realizing from that, that we have to practice that activity and little by little, you know, I like those cupcakes and those glasses of wine too. Trust me. But I also have trained my body and trained my psyche through a lot of really hard work to to keep my body in a place where my my practice, my 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 habit is stuff that is 
trying to be as good for my body and happiness as possible. Yeah. And something that she said that really stuck with me that I thought was so interesting. We all know the feeling of like fiending for something and craving something and doing whatever it takes to get that and focusing on almost the conquest experience of 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 that drive and then getting that thing and having the experience of it, the pleasure of it, not even be recognized. Or if it is recognized, not be anywhere near the pleasure heights you were hoping it was going to hit. And I think that is something that Dr. Santos mentioned that I thought was really powerful was to focus on after you do after you get what you want, after you get the carrot, after you do the thing you thought you needed to do, focus on how it makes you feel. Because I think that is a much, you know, the same thing is for me with working out. Like I never actually want to work out. I have to force myself to put the clothes on, force myself to, you know, to do whatever I'm doing. But afterwards, you always feel incredible. And I think focusing on the validation of that actual emotional feeling upon completion is a much better guide and a much better motivator to either do something again or not do it again. And now it's time for our favorite things. You guys love these. Now it's time for our favorite things. Yes! Okay, so my favorite thing this week is something that um, I don't know about you guys. My kids are obsessed with making playlists. They've just discovered like that they could have their own music and their own music tastes, and they really enjoy putting these together. Actually, my sisters have made them with them, so they have a few different ones now. So I got recommended by a girlfriend of mine something called Mighty Kids. It's a it remember the old iPod shuffles that had no screen on them. It's exactly like that. So the kids have this tiny little, um, you know, clip thing that they can put only music on, or I guess <clears throat> that they can put any MP3 file on, you know, music from. I think it's, um, I think it's from like Spotify or Amazon Music. In any case, the kids love it. They actually make an, a waterproof version too, which is really good if your kids are kind of destructive. Um, and in any case, it's been really cool because it gets them away. Like my my kids also love to listen to books on tape and um, and short stories and things. And it's a really fun, easy thing for them to have um, that doesn't put another screen in front of their face, which I know is something we're all a little bit concerned about these days. So really cute device. I definitely found it useful. I thought you guys would like to hear about it too. It's so fun. Um, My favorite thing today is a kid's brand called Goat Milk that was um, a bunch of stuff was sent to me as a gift from a friend of mine. And it's just beautiful, beautiful um, clothing. It's – and it's so – it's funny because it's very – simple and as you can tell that it's like feels nice and organic and very lightweight um and it's it's one of those things where sometimes I think that my kids just want to wear shirts that have their favorite characters on it but my kids really want to be comfortable and putting them in beautiful fabrics that that they find to be breathable especially now when they're running outside and it's it's warm so anyway goat milk really like them really nice it's a really simple brand and the kids are absolutely obsessed with it so fun All right, you guys, that's it from us today. Um, Please remember, you guys, if you are interested in hearing more from us, that uh, we'd love you to subscribe. We would love for you to give us those five stars. They really, really, really help us out and make a big difference. Um, And of course, leave us a review. We'd love to to hear your thoughts on, on the topic today. Certainly something I think really meaningful and appropriate in this time. Don't forget to email us, mompranepod at gmail.com. And follow us everywhere that you can find us. Well, we're trying to infiltrate absolutely every single possible place. So, you know what? And if you think if there's a one place we're not, just let us know. Email us and we will try to invade you there as well. Yeah, just kind of only, only a little bit kidding. All right, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs> this is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Mom Brain is a Gallery Media Group original production.